Well, good morning. We are going to continue in 1 Peter this morning, but I actually want us to start in a different place. So if you've got a Bible with you, uh, if you would flip it open to the book of Revelation. The beginning of Revelation, there are a set of letters that are addressed to the, the churches at the time. There's one in particular, you can find it in chapter 2, begins in uh, verse 8, written to the church at Smyrna. In the early 2nd uh, century, there was a bishop of that church, his name was Polycarp. In 156 AD, Polycarp was put to death. The book of Revelation was written somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 AD. And the church that Polycarp oversaw uh, was one of the churches that received one of these letters uh, from Christ. If you've got a Bible that puts Jesus' words in red, you'll notice that there's a couple chapter chunk here where all the words are in red. These are words from Jesus to these particular churches at the time. And look down at verse 10 here of chapter 2. Jesus says this to the church at Smyrna, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Then he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. In the year 156 A.D., Polycarp faced exactly that. Despite a mandate from authorities At the time, Polycarp refused to burn incense as an offering to the Roman emperor. He wouldn't do it. Because of his refusal, Polycarp was sentenced to be burned at the stake. Tradition says that while he was standing there, the flames didn't touch him. That as he stood there to be burned, he wasn't actually dying, and so they ended up having to stab him instead. He's he's recorded as having said the following while being led to the stake on his final day. He said, 80 and 6 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Those are some of the last words of a man being led to his death because of his faithful obedience to Jesus Christ, his refusal to worship or pay homage to anything above Christ. Look back again at verse 10 here in Revelation chapter 2. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Polycarp, the bishop of the church at Smyrna, about 80 years after this book was written, to have read those words and thought about the fate that he was about to endure? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Those were words written to his church, to people who likely were alive at some point at the same time that Polycarp was, and then he gets walked out to be burned at the stake, and this is what he has to say. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? 
much of the book of 1 Peter that we've been looking at over the last 10 weeks has to do with the topic of maintaining this kind of unshaken, unbreakable faith in the face of persecution. Peter began a discussion of that topic directly in chapter 3, verse 11, and it's continued all the way through what we're going to look at today, which is chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. In the most direct fashion, I think, that Peter has yet discussed the topic, he's going to tell believers exactly what to do when they face suffering. You see, but when Peter talks about suffering throughout the book, or throughout the letter of 1 Peter, he's not talking about the kind of suffering that we experience because our circumstances don't go the way that we want them to, or something happens in our life that causes us grief or pain. He's talking about suffering that comes as a result of being persecuted because of your faith. He's got a very specific thing in mind, and he wants to encourage believers how they are to act in response to that. If you were to flip back to the beginning of 1 Peter and kind of track your way through it, you would see that he offers some truth in chapter 1. And then he gives this general call to holy living, the second part of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And then he plays out what does that look like in various relationships that you might experience here on earth. He talks about submission to authorities. He talks about slaves and masters and husbands and wives. And then he turns to the topic of persecution and suffering in the midst of it. So as to say, if your holy living causes someone to rise up against you or to oppose you or to stand against you or to even wish to do you harm because of your holy living, because of your faith in Jesus, then this is how you should respond. And he spends almost two full chapters of the letter discussing that topic in particular. And today, we're going to look at how he ends that conversation. There are places in the world right now where because of faith in Jesus Christ, people's heads literally roll. The brothers and sisters in countries around the world face that sort of fate or that potential fate because of their faith in Jesus Christ. What we face here in America is more like eyes rolling because of our faith in Jesus Christ. That there might be people that you work with or that you interact with or that you live alongside who believe differently than you do. And so when you talk about Christ or you talk about Christianity or you go about living life the way that you do, you get eye rolls. There are other people in the world who, if they talk about Christ or they live the way that they do, Death is a very real possibility for them. That's not necessarily to diminish what we may face here in America, but it certainly offers us some perspective as to what we face here in America. Perspective is all about what Bob talked about last week. What should our perspective be in the midst of persecution? Bob pointed out that God instructs us to have three kind of perspectives that we hold in mind. A backward perspective that looks at the suffering of Jesus and its magnitude and magnificence and what he suffered on the cross for us. A forward-looking perspective that considers that unbreakable inheritance that we have. It's indestructible. It can't be taken away from us. That while we look backward and see Christ's sufferings on the cross, we also look forward to the glory that we're going to receive one day in the future thanks to our faith in Christ. And then there's also a relational perspective looking at what Jesus did for us in particular. 
and living our life out of that relationship with him. It's from that kind of perspective that Peter writes these words, verses 12 to 19, chapter 4. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We're going to kind of walk through this passage two times. And we're going to look at separate, uh, two separate ideas each time we walk through. The first time, we're just going to talk about what does Peter tell us we can expect? What is God telling us that we can expect as believers? And the second time we go through, we're going to look at how does God, how does Peter tell us that we should respond to what it is that we face? So walking through the first time, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. What's, what can we expect? We can expect fiery trial. The word fire here isn't literal. Some would throughout Christian history and possibly in the future as well experience a type of persecution that involves real flames. Polycarp met that sort of fate. Others, maybe the more normative, would be to feel kind of the heat of persecution in a different form. What we can know for sure is that this fiery trial will happen. Peter's already talked about it. He talked about it in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where he said, In this you rejoice, that being faith in Jesus, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is refined by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's this fiery trial that will await anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. Jump down to verse 14. What else can we expect? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Insult. This is likely the most common form of persecution that we would face here in America. And we're incredibly, incredibly lucky to live in a time and in a place where the worst that most of us have to face because of our faith in Jesus Christ is the reviling or the insult of someone who thinks differently than us. Is that a form of persecution? Absolutely. Peter says so right here. Could we live in a place and a time where we experience much worse? Yes. Could we come upon a day here in America in the 21st century where we face worse? Yes. We don't particularly like to think about it, and it's not something that anyone who's a Christian should go chasing after, but it is a reality that at any point any nation on this earth could arrive at a place where someone who places their faith in Jesus Christ faces a persecution worse than insult. That could definitely happen. Verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Judgment or refinement. 
That's another thing that we can expect. Judgment doesn't always have to be a bad thing. We see the word judgment in Scripture, and we, we automatically think of something very negative. If you were wrongly convicted of murder, and you went through an entire trial process, and you arrived at the day where the jury or the judge pronounced a verdict, and they got it right and said that you were innocent, that moment of judgment would be one of the happiest things you ever experienced in your life. Judgment doesn't have to be bad. In fact, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then your moment of eternal judgment is going to be one of the most joyous experiences in your soul's existence. To stand before a holy and righteous God, more fully aware of the depth of your sinfulness than you've ever been, and to be declared innocent, thanks to faith in the work of Jesus Christ, that'll be a judgment that you're fully excited to take part in. Judgment doesn't have to be a bad thing. In fact, it's part of God's will. Peter says it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Peter tells us that there's some sort of judgment that's going to take place here on earth that's going to actually begin with God's people. And if it begins with God's people and it comes from the Lord, then it can't be a bad thing. God must mean it for good in some sort of way. We're going to face these trials, and it's God's way of refining us. A couple of truth reminders all the way back from chapter 1. Suffering has an earthly purpose. Suffering also has an eternal purpose. That's suffering because of persecution has an earthly purpose. And suffering because of persecution has an eternal purpose. Here on earth, our struggles in the midst of our faith are to sanctify us. They're to make us look more like Jesus. That's the earthly purpose. That we would identify with Christ. That we would become more like him. As he suffered unjustly, so too when we suffer unjustly, we identify with Christ. And then the eternal purpose is that by identifying with Christ here bodily in the midst of our suffering for persecution, we might identify with him eternally in glory at the moment of judgment. And if the pain and the challenge that we feel here on earth is what it is, if the struggle of being a Christian is what it is for us, if the insults are what they are, if we lived in a different place and the, and the real kind of physical persecution is what it is, imagine how much worse that's going to be for those who haven't placed their faith in Jesus when they meet ultimate judgment. That's what Peter says. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The second truth reminder is this, that suffering is temporary. What we face here on earth is just that. It's confined to here on earth. For those outside what Peter calls the house of God, for those who haven't placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they may not face the kind of suffering or the kind of persecution that a Christian does here on earth, but they face something in eternity that's infinitely worse. What is the last thing that we should expect, or at least the last thing that God would expect of us in the midst of this here on earth? Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. We should expect that our persecution arises out of faithful obedience. We've talked about this before, but one of Peter's continual encouragements is that we cannot allow the presence or the potential of persecution to deter us from being obedient to Christ. 
our suffering for the sake of righteousness has to come from a place of just that, righteousness or holiness, or as Peter calls it throughout 1 Peter, doing good. What it doesn't look like is suffering as a result of our own sin. And so he lists a few things here. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. Well, duh, that wouldn't be persecution. If I murdered someone and I faced a consequence for it, that would have nothing to do with the fact that I put my faith in Jesus. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief. That, that would be another duh. Or an evildoer, which that's become a little bit broader now. So you've got to ask yourself, what all does evildoer entail? Peter broadens the category, but then he ends it with, or as a meddler, which literally translates to one who watches intently the affairs of another. Peter essentially says, if you so much as annoy another person by meddling in their personal life, then don't cry persecution persecution when you face the consequences of that. Peter's trying to clarify what it is that he's talking about when he talks about suffering as a Christian or suffering because of righteousness. We would be wise to, to do the same here this morning. We're talking about persecution or suffering that arises out of nothing more than faithfully following Jesus. That's the kind of fiery trial we can expect. Those are the times that we can expect insult to arise. Those are the places where we can expect to be refined Those are the places where the Lord expects us to remain obedient. If you're in the wrong at all, if you're in sin at all, that's not persecution. That's a consequence of your actions. So now I want to walk through a second time here, and how are we to respond to this? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Don't be surprised. Rejoice. In last week's passage, if you just look back to chapter 4, verse 4, we saw that people who aren't Christian are surprised that a follower of Jesus wouldn't engage in the same kind of living that they do. Look at verse 4. With respect to this, what is the this? Jump back up to verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised that you not join, do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. Peter flips that over here, and he says, in the same way that they're... Uh, surprised that you wouldn't join with them in that kind of living, you don't be surprised when they don't understand. Why? I've often wondered what it would have been like to have lived in this region of the uh, United States way back before uh, like modern weather predicting technology. We get severe storms, and we get advance notice of severe storms, and some people still lose their minds. Other people lose their minds to the point where they go outside. That's me. (laughs) But if you lived a few hundred years ago and you had no idea when those kind of supercell-type thunderstorms were going to pop up, imagine what it would have been like. Your home wasn't as secure as it is now. You likely didn't have a basement to run into in the event of a tornado. And so something may have happened that destroyed your house at one point. And imagine the fear of thinking, when will that happen again? 
how can I be sure if this is going to pop up one afternoon? How will I ever know? Imagine the fear that would have come from that. Now we get told that that's coming. So there's not any reason to fear. Instead, we can take action and be prepared. We can get into our basement. We can, you know, get our cars moved inside or whatever the case might be. And then after it's over, we can rejoice that we had advance notice. Peter says, I'm giving you advanced notice. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial that's going to come upon you. Instead, rejoice. I'm telling you it's coming. I'm giving you the forecast. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the fiery trial of persecution is coming and you should not be surprised. What should be surprising to a Christian is that they may live in or go through seasons of life where suffering for the name of Christ isn't a reality. What should be surprising to us as Christians in America over the last fill-in-the-blank number of years is that we've lived as Christians in relative ease. That should be a surprise. Because Scripture tells us that the norm is the other way, that you would face persecution because of your faith. Instead, we should replace our surprise with rejoicing. Listen to some of the way that the New Testament talks about this. Matthew 5.11 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. That's Jesus speaking. Acts 5.11, the apostles were thrown in prison. And then when they're released, we're told this. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Paul says in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. James says it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's a theme that runs all throughout the New Testament. If you're caught off balance by the reality of persecution or suffering as a result of your faith, there is no way to rejoice when it comes your way. You're too busy trying to regain your equilibrium. On the flip side, if you understand the reality that Jesus suffered, and therefore we can plan on suffering too, it allows you to rejoice in the fact that you're identifying with Christ. That doesn't make it any more fun, though, and that's where the second peace comes in here. Look at verse 19. We're called to entrust ourselves. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Jesus on the cross as he was being crucified said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Peter in chapter 2 said, when he, that's Jesus, suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the same word for commit and entrust as is used here. It literally means to hand over something of value into the care of another. The most valuable thing you have is your life. And there's no one more qualified to hand it over to than the God who created you. In fact, Peter reminds us, God reminds us here, that he is a faithful creator. If he's big enough and powerful enough to have created you, then he's big enough and powerful enough to care for you in the midst of being persecuted because of your faith. And the fact that he's faithful to his word and unchanging in his character is further proof that you can entrust the whole of your life to him. In fact, God, our faithful creator, is the only thing in existence that we should be willing to entrust ourselves 
to? What does that look like? What does it mean to entrust myself? It means that in the midst of finding yourself in persecution, you would be able to have forward-looking perspective, like Bob talked about last week. That you could rely on the promise of the gospel, that there's an indestructible inheritance waiting for me, and this thing that I'm experiencing is temporary. Therefore, I can commit myself further to trusting in and following the Lord because I know he's going to care for me eternally. You can entrust yourself in the midst of that persecution. Verse 19 gives us something else at the very end. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That phrase, doing good, is how Peter talks about holy living throughout his letter. When Peter tells us to do good, he isn't telling us to act a certain way in order to be saved. He's telling us that we act a certain way motivated by the fact that we have been saved. We live a holy life motivated by our salvation, not in order to achieve our salvation. We can't allow the presence or prospect of persecution to deter us from pursuing faithful obedience to God and his word. Okay, well, what does doing good look like? If there's someone in your life who's a consistent source of persecution, of insult or ridicule or reviling or whatever the case might be, Scripture tells us exactly the kind of good that we can do for them. Jesus says in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those who would stand against you in your faith are likely the strongest candidates in your life for your prayer. They could use your gospel-driven and loving acts of service and prayer more than anyone else in your life. When everything within us wants to write those people off, the model of Jesus should compel us in a different direction. We were once enemies to Christ because of our sin. And what did he do in response? He did not write us off and push us to the side. Instead, he gave his life for us. He hung on the cross for us. He prayed that God would forgive the very people who nailed his hands and feet to a couple of pieces of lumber. And in following his example, not only should we continue to pursue righteous living in the face of unjust suffering, we should pray for those who would bring it against us. We're also told in Romans 12, 20, that we should overcome evil with good. How do we respond to suffering because of persecution? We rejoice, we entrust ourselves to the Lord, and we continue to do good. And then last but not least, look at verse 16, we should glorify God. Verse 16 says this, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Who receives the glory for the good that we do in the midst of our persecution? God does, not us. The goal is not to end up in a news story or to have the eyes of the world look at you. The goal is to have the eyes of the world look to Jesus, the author, perfecter, motivator of your faith in your life. Which leads me back to the quote that I started with this morning. I want to end with the same words that I read at the beginning of this message because I think they illustrate that this type of living, this kind of rejoicing and entrusting and doing good and glorifying isn't theoretical. It's not words on a page that sound great if you're some sort of super Christian. No, these are things that real life people can actually do. Look at what Polycarp said while he was led to the stake. Eighty and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? He's going to continue to do good to live a faithfully obedient, 
righteous life in the midst of his persecution. You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting judgment that is prepared for the wicked. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour. He's going to rejoice in that. He's going to entrust himself to the Lord so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. And he understands that his suffering in the midst of persecution is an identifying with Jesus and his suffering on the cross. We shouldn't be surprised if we end up suffering persecution as a result of our faith. Instead, we should rejoice and entrust ourselves to the Lord, continuing to do good even in the midst of our persecution that God might be glorified. Those words are what wrap up Peter's discussion about how is it that a Christian who understands the truth of the gospel is committed to living a holy life and is playing that out in their various relationships and then gets persecuted because of it, how is it that that person should respond? They've got right perspective. They've got their eyes set on an eternal hope. And then they just commit themselves to continuing to faithfully follow in response to the gospel. We're going to end with... uh, a song that we introduced last week, I believe. Uh, It's called Come to the Altar.